So welcome back to another lecture in contract law. In this lecture, we're going to continue on from the topic we were discussing in the previous lecture, which is the incorporation of terms into a contract. And we were talking about there being three basic techniques you can follow in order to incorporate a term into a contract. You can get somebody to sign a document stating that term, subject to certain limitations. Or you can take steps to bring another party's attention to that term even if they don't sign a document stating it. Or you can incorporate a term through a course of dealing or a custom in a particular trade. Now we were in the midst of discussing the second of those methods, the incorporation by notice method. And I was talking about the key, and a key requirement when it comes to incorporation by notice is that you must take reasonable steps to draw the other party's attention to the existence of the term when they are unaware of its existence or when they state that they are unaware of its existence. So we have been talking about these old ticket cases, mainly involving railway companies or other transport companies that had certain terms of carriage and they were attempting to bring their customers' notice to the existence of these, or their attention rather to the existence of these terms of carriage. And I mean, one of the things that you can conclude from that old set of cases on railway tickets is that there's something a little bit unsatisfactory about the tr traditional approach. There's kind of maybe a mess of, of rules and maybe a lack of clarity on the approach to be taken. There are, fortunately, some more recent cases that, even if they don't completely overturn the old set of cases, provide a more sure-footed approach for courts to follow when it comes to this reasonable notice idea. And probably the most important of those cases is the Interphoto Picture Library versus Stiletto Visual Programs case from 1989. It's an English case, been cited several times in Irish case law as well. And the facts of the case are as follows. The defendants, Stiletto Visual Programs, were an advertising agency, and they had been looking for some photographs from the 1950s that they could use in a presentation for a client. So they contacted the plaintiffs, Interphoto Picture Library, by telephone, asking them to send them some sample photographs. Now, no particular sums of money or terms were discussed at this stage. The plaintiffs duly sent the defendants 47 sample photographs. They did so in a jiffy bag with a delivery note, and the delivery note stated a number of terms and conditions that would apply to the provision of these sample photographs. And one of the terms was particularly noteworthy because it stated the following. It stated that all transparencies, all the photographs, must be returned to us within 14 days from the date of posting or delivery, a holding fee of £5 plus VAT per day will be charged for each transparency which is retained by you longer than the said period of 14 days unless some for further agreement is reached. So hopefully you can see the issue here is that if they hold on to these photograph transparencies beyond the 14 days, this holding fee which is quite extortionate, you could argue, will apply to each transparency that they hold. Now, you can imagine what happened in practice. What happened was that the defendants actually forgot about the pictures. They never used them in the presentation for their clients. The 14 days elapsed, and then the plaintiffs tried to contact the defendants to seek the return of the photographs, but they were, for some reason, unable to make contact, and the photographs were eventually returned 14 days after the original due date. But by this time a charge of £3,783.50 was held to apply under this 
penalty clause within the delivery docket. Now, I mean, I've kind of foregrounded the conclusion of this particular case already by mentioning that courts are suspicious of delivery dockets uh, as having contractual effect. But the important thing here is the reasoning or the judgment in the case. So even though the plaintiffs tried to argue that this penalty clause should be incorporated into the contract between themselves and the defendants, the defendants argued that it shouldn't because it was a very onerous and unusual term. And the Court of Appeal agreed with them. And I just want to quote from two of the judgments in this case because they have shaped and influenced the subsequent legal approach to incorporation by notice. So first of all, Lord Justice Dillon. Now, Lord Justice Dillon says, in the ticket cases, those are the cases that we were discussing previously in the previous lecture, the courts held that the common law required that reasonable steps be taken to draw the other party's attention to the printed conditions or they would not be part of the contract. It is, in my judgment, a logical development from those cases that if one condition in a set of printed conditions is particularly onerous or unusual, the party seeking to enforce it must show that that particular condition was fairly brought to the attention of the other party. In the present case, nothing whatsoever was done by the plaintiffs to draw attention, sorry, to draw the defendant's attention particularly to condition two. It was merely one of four columns width of conditions printed across the foot of the delivery note. So you see here what Lord Justice Dillon is saying is that it's not just a, a question of reasonable steps being taken to draw your attention to all the terms. If there is a particularly unusual term, you have to take extra steps or ex make an extra effort to make sure that that particular term or set of terms is drawn to the other party's attention. Now, Lord Justice Bingham gave a similar judgment. One of the things that he said is that it's kind of difficult to come up with a general rule that applies to all of these cases. Nevertheless, in this particular case, in my opinion, the plaintiffs, Interphoto, did not give sufficient notice. They delivered 47 transparencies, which was a number that the defendants had not specifically asked for, and Condition 2 contained a daily rate per transparency after the initial period many times greater than was usual or heard of. Now, the defendants are not to be relieved of that liability because they did not read the condition, although doubtless they did not, but in my judgment they are to be relieved of the liability because the plaintiffs did not do what was necessary to draw this unreasonable and extortionate clause fairly to their attention. So look, what can we conclude from the Interphoto case? Well, it's kind of an updating of the Parker case. In Parker, it was all just about whether reasonable steps have been taken to draw attention to the terms of carriage or terms of business within the railway station. Here, what the court is saying is that the steps that must be taken by a party seeking to rely upon a clause to have that clause incorporated into the contract by notice, they're going to vary depending on how onerous or unusual the clause is. And that is to say that the more onerous and the more unusual the clause, the more that must be done to satisfy this reasonable notice requirement. So that's the key idea here that what counts as reasonable is not just a function of the reasonable expectations that somebody might have had of finding the terms and conditions or how easy it was to locate a general statement of the terms and conditions, but rather it 
varies depending on the specific terms and conditions themselves and how odd or unexpected they might be. Now, in practice, the courts have struggled a little bit with the interphoto rule to determine what really counts as an unusual or onerous term. And in practice, greater emphasis seems to be placed on unusualness. And one reason for this kind of goes back to the whole rule on consideration in contract law, which is that courts try not to get involved with disputes about whether what's a fair price or what's a fair penalty, unless there's some statutory basis for them intervening to determine what's a, a fair price. So there's a later English decision called O'Brien versus MGN Limited, which develops this idea. And now this involves a newspaper group that ran a scratch card promotion with the sale of one of their newspapers. So scratch cards were placed in a newspaper along with printed instructions about how to claim a prize if you were successful in the scratch card game. Now these printed instructions gave people playing the game a phone number to ring and included the phrase, and this is the key bit of it, that normal mirror group rules apply. So this is for the mirror group of newspapers in the UK. So the plaintiff in this case purchased a newspaper from the mirror group, got the scratch card, and apparently won a £50,000 jackpot on the scratch card. Now, unfortunately, it turned out that the mirror group had made a mistake when developing this scratch card promotional scheme. There were supposed to be only two winners win a £50,000 jackpot, but due to a printing error, there were 1,472 1, winners of the £50,000 jackpot which obviously put the group on the hook for quite a lot of prize money. Now, the normal mirror group rules that apply to promotions and schemes like this stated that if more prizes were claimed than were available, a separate draw would take place, which would basically divide the sum of money, the pot of money, in this case maybe the 100000 that was supposed to be given out, amongst certain people or to determine among the pool of 1,472 people who would actually win the jackpot. And so the Mirror Group tried to argue that this rule was incorporated into the contract between themselves and the plaintiff in this case. And the Court of Appeal in the UK agreed that it was. And so their reasoning here was that the term in question, basically insisting on this separate draw if more prizes were claimed than were available, was not that onerous or unusual. In particular, it did not impose a burden on the plaintiff, it merely deprived him of a windfall for which he had actually done very little in return. I mean, I mean, the consideration that he had provided in return was just that he purchased a copy of the newspaper. Consequently, they reasoned that the court had done just enough to incorporate it into the contract. And one of the noteworthy features of this judgment is that it was written by Lady Justice Hale, subsequently Baroness Hale, the president of the UK Supreme Court. And I just want to quote briefly from her judgment. She stated that, following the interphoto rule, the words onerous or unusual are simply one way of putting the general proposition that reasonable steps must be taken to draw the particular term in question to the notice of those who are bound by it, and that more is required in relation to certain terms than to others depending on their effect. In the particular context of this particular game, I consider that the defendants did just enough to bring the rules to the claimant's attention, 
There was a clear reference to the rules on the face of the card. There was a clear reference to the rules in the paper. There was evidence that those rules could be discovered either from the newspaper office or from back issues of the newspaper. So they, they mirror group narrowly avoided being liable for an excessive amount of prize money. And this approach in the Mirror Group newspaper case, O'Brien case, has been endorsed in, in Ireland as well. So to summarize here on this third idea when it comes to incorporation by notice, to have a term incorporated into a contract in the absence of a signature on a document, the parties seeking to rely upon the term must take reasonable steps to draw the other party's attention to that term, and what counts as a reasonable step will vary as a function of how unusual or onerous or strange the term is. And the less unusual or onerous, the less that will need to be done, and the more unusual or onerous, the more that will need to be done. And I should say, as an aside here, there's a famous Lord Denning judgment in a case called Sperling v. Bradshaw, which we will discuss in more detail later in the semester when we look again at unfair terms and contracts, where he kind of endorses this idea. I just want to quote from it because it's a fairly evocative and memorable phrase. He says, I quite agree that the more unreasonable a clause is, the greater the notice which must be given of it. Some clauses, which I have seen, would need to be printed in red ink on the face of the document with a red hand pointing to it before the notice could be held to be sufficient. So, I mean, that's just... A somewhat poetic example, but what Denning is saying there does have some force and that if you have unusual terms in a set of printed terms and conditions, the use of bolding or underlining or highlighting of some sort may be necessary in order to satisfy this reasonable notice test. Okay, that then brings us to the final method of incorporating a term into a contract, incorporation by a custom or a course of dealing. Now, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, this is really the weakest method of incorporating a term into a contract, and it's really going to, only going to arise as a fallback when there has been a complete failure to incorporate by notice or by signature. And it turns out that there are fairly strict limits on when you can claim incorporation by custom or course of dealing. Now, I'm actually treating these as the same thing, custom and course of dealing, when in practice they're a little bit distinct. So. Let's discuss them separately now. Let's talk first about incorporation by a course of dealing. One of the key rules in the case law is that in order for this to succeed and this to work, it must be a regular and consistent course of dealing that has relied upon the term that you are trying to incorporate. And this need for consistency is illustrated by a famous uh, English case called McCutcheon versus David McBrain. So this arises from a set of facts in Scotland. Um, here we have the plaintiff McCutcheon, who lives on the island of Islay, famous, of course, for its many whiskies. And he asks his brother-in-law, who has the most Scottish name I've ever come across, McSparren, to arrange for his car to be shipped from the Isle of Islay to the mainland, Scottish mainland. So here, McSparren took the car to the defendant's office, David McBrain's office, and was quoted a price for the shipping of the car to the mainland. He paid the price, he was given a receipt, and he handed over the car. Now, McSparren, the brother-in-law, had shipped items with the defendants before and had sometimes been asked to sign a risk note when he did so. 
and this risk note exempted them from any liability in the event of an accident during the shipping. Now McCutcheon, the guy who wanted the car shipped in the first place, had also shipped items with the defendants, and on the four occasions that he had done so, he had signed a risk note. On this particular occasion, no risk note was presented to McSparren, wasn't signed as a result, the ship had an accident, it actually sank on its journey to the mainland, and the car was destroyed, and the defendants tried to argue that their exemption of liability clause should be incorporated into the contract due to the previous regular and consistent course of dealing between the parties McCutcheon and McSparren. But the House of Lords found against the defendants, because there wasn't sufficient consistency in the previous dealings. So again, McSparren had sometimes signed a risk note, but sometimes he hadn't. And McCutcheon had always signed a risk note, but he wasn't the only party to this contract. I mean, McSparren was acting as, in, as his agent in this case. And Lord Pierce in particular noted that when the conduct is not consistent, there is no reason why it should produce an invariable result of incorporating a term into a contract. Now, another thing that emerges from the case law is it's not just consistent consistency, it must be a regular course of dealing. So there's a case called Hollier versus Rambler Motors Limited, which proves this point. It's a 1972 English case where we have Hollier, the plaintiff, who places his car at the defendant's garage for repairs. Now he had done this previously, he had put his car in for repairs on three or four occasions over the previous five years. On at least two of those occasions, and possibly all of them, the evidence was unclear, He was asked to sign an invoice stating that the garage would not be liable for any damage caused to his vehicle by fire. Now, on this particular occasion, he did not sign such a document, and the car was, sure enough, damaged by fire. The problem was that the Court of Appeal said that even though he had previously signed an invoice with this exclusion of liability clause, there wasn't sufficient regularity in the course of dealing between the parties to warrant the incorporation of the exclusion clause. In particular, they noted that the the defendant, sorry, the plaintiff, had contracted with the defendants at a frequency of less than one contract per year, and that's not regular. Now, just to be clear, it is possible to satisfy the regular and consistent course of dealing requirement, and I mentioned this case already, the Sperling v. Bradshaw case from Denning, that's the red ink and red hand case. So the facts of that case are that Sperling owned a warehouse in East London. Bradshaw, the defendants, had seven barrels of orange juice that he wished to store at the warehouse, and when doing so, he received a contract stating that the warehouse would not be liable for any damages caused by the negligence of its own staff. Now, we'll discuss this case again later in the year, as I said, specifically to do with this idea of exclusion of liability for negligence. Now, the orange juice was damaged through the negligence in storage within the warehouse, and Bradshaw tried to argue that the exclusion clause should not be incorporated into the contract because he had not been given reasonable notice of it and he had not signed any document stating that exclusion clause. But the Court of Appeal found against him on two grounds. One ground is that they thought there actually maybe had been reasonable notice in this case, And second, they felt that even if there hadn't been reasonable notice on this particular occasion, Bradshaw had in fact contracted with the defendants on seven previous occasions, and on each of those previous occasions, the exclusion clause was included in the contract between them. Consequently, there was a regular and consistent course of dealing. 
Now, what about the custom rule? Okay, so when you're relying on incorporation by custom, one of the key ideas that has emerged in the case law is that the parties to the contract must be in the same industry, and there must be equality of bargaining power between them. So you need to have both of those things in order to incorporate by custom. And now, a lot of the cases here involve construction or construction-related contracts because there are some fairly well-known standard customs within the construction industry. So let me just give a couple of cases on this idea. First, the British Crane Hire Corporation versus Ipswich Plant Hire, 1975 English case. Here we have both parties in the construction industry. The defendants needed to hire a crane from the plaintiffs, and the hiring agreement was reached or concluded by telephone because of the urgent need to acquire the crane, and nothing was said about any particular conditions of hire. The crane was subsequently received, and the plaintiffs then sent on their standard terms and conditions that would apply to the the hiring out. Unfortunately, by the time those standard terms and conditions were received by the defendants, the crane had gotten into trouble. It had sunk into marshy ground on a construction site. And then the plaintiffs tried to rely upon one of their standard terms, stating that the defendants would be liable for the costs of recovering the crane in such an event. And the Court of Appeal held that they were entitled to do so because there was a custom in the industry. This was a customary term within the industry. And in reaching that conclusion, Lord Denning noted, and this is where this idea that they have to be within the same industry and there has to be equality of bargaining power between them is expressed, he noted that the parties were both in the trade, they were both of equal bargaining power, each was a firm of plant hirers who had hired out plant machinery for construction, and from the evidence it is quite clear that both parties knew that conditions were habitually imposed by the supplier of these machines, and both parties knew the substance of those conditions. And this approach in the British Crane Hire Corporation and Ipswich Plant Hire has been explicitly followed in Ireland. And one illustration of this is a case called Lynch Roofing Systems versus Christopher Bennett and Son. And here we have a dispute between uh, contracting companies over a roofing contract. The plaintiffs were subcontractors for the defendants on the construction of a home. The plaintiffs issued proceedings against the defendants. The defendants tried to block those proceedings, and they did so explicitly on the grounds that there was a standard kind of customary term within industry contracts that stated that if there was a dispute between the parties, they had to try and resolve that dispute through arbitration before they brought any court proceedings. Now, the problem here was that this standard industry contract was never provided and the term wasn't incorporated by signature or notice. But the court found in favor of the defendants, arguing that both parties were in the same trade and both parties, as a result, should have known or been aware of the customary conditions within standard industry contracts. Now, all of this then leads me to probably the most important Irish case on incorporation of terms in recent years, and in some ways actually the most significant Irish contract law case in recent times, and that's the case of James Elliott Construction versus Irish Asphalt Limited. That's a 2014 Irish Supreme Court decision. 
Now, I've mentioned this to you already, and I've already recommended that you should read the judgment in this case because it's an excellent review of the Irish position on incorporation of terms into contracts. It covers a lot of the case law that I've mentioned already in these lectures, and it seems to represent the most kind of up-to-date Irish courts thinking on this topic. And it's also a really good example of the kinds of complex commercial litigation that can arise nowadays. You'll recall from the previous lecture how I expressed some astonishment at the notion that a case like Curtis versus Chemical Cleaning and Dyeing Company could get to the second highest court in, in England. That's the case of the woman with the damaged wedding dress. Well, I'm much less surprised that a case like James Elliott Construction versus Irish Asphalt would end up in the highest court in Ireland, given the sums of money involved in it. So this case is a complex commercial litigation arising from the construction of the Ballymun Youth Centre in Dublin in the early 2000s. Uh, so James Elliott Construction were the firm responsible for building that centre, and they relied upon a product supplied to them by Irish Asphalt Limited for creating a hardcore that went into the foundations of the building, the flooring of the building, and some of the external pathways around the building. And this hardcore provided by Irish Asphalt Limited was defective because it contained a, a product or element called pyrite. So the key thing with pyrite is that it expands and contracts under different temperatures, and this can cause cracking in the foundations of buildings. And pyrite used in building hardcore has been the subject of litigation in many countries, and some of it quite costly and expensive litigation too. So sure enough, in the case of the Ballymun Youth Centre, the pyrite did expand and did cause significant structural damage to the Ballymun Youth Centre. Now, James Elliott Construction tried to sue Irish Asphalt for supplying them with a defective product that caused them significant loss. But Irish Asphalt tried to avoid liability for the damages caused to the building by relying on a standard term that they used when supplying building hardcore. And this standard term stated that in the event of some kind of damage to the building, James, sorry, Irish Asphalt would only be liable for the cost of replacing the materials that caused the damage. And they argued that this limitation of liability clause had been successfully incorporated into the contract between themselves and James Elliott Construction Limited. Now, what's interesting about this case, and one of the reasons why I recommend reading it, is that they effectively argued that it had been incorporated by all three methods. So they did a, a classic legal argumentation technique of arguing in the alternative. So they said, okay, this term has been incorporated by signature, or failing that, it has been incorporated by reasonable notice, or failing that, it has been incorporated by a course of dealing. So it's definitely been incorporated using one of the three methods, and we kind of leave it up to the court to pick which method they think is most persuasive. Now, as it turns out, the court decided that it hadn't been incorporated into the contract at all. Now, the facts of this case are quite complex, but the main gist of it for our purposes is that Irish Asphalt had delivered the hardcore to the construction site over a thousand times, and every time they had done so, they got the construction foreman to sign a delivery document, and this delivery document didn't state the limitation of liability clause, but made reference to the fact that there existed certain 
standard terms and conditions of supply with James Elliot or with Irish Asphalt. So they argued that this limitation of liability clause had been incorporated into the contract by signature because of the fact that these delivery documents had been signed. And the court rejected that argument. And they did so going back to the rule as we discussed it, which is that in order for a term to be incorporated by signature, the document that's being signed has to be one that a reasonable person would understand to have contractual effect. It would have to actually refer to a specific and well-known set of terms and conditions, and it would have to be provided prior to the formation of the contract. And the problem here was that the delivery documents failed to satisfy those conditions. Delivery documents are not reasonably understood to have contractual effect. There was no actual terms on the delivery document. They were located elsewhere. And these were provided after the contract had been formed between the parties anyway. So that argument was a a non-runner. So since that failed, the court looked at the incorporation by notice argument. And what they argued is that here is that the parties had many previous dealings And there were, in fact, credit notes sent to James Elliott Construction's accounts department that specifically stated the limitation clause that would apply to the supply of this hardcore. So that, in combination with the 1,000 delivery documents, provided reasonable notice of the existence of this limitation of liability clause, even if there wasn't incorporation by signature. And the court rejected that as well, and they relied upon the interphoto rule, the idea that special steps have to be taken to draw the party's attention to the specific term. And they argued that, well, the delivery documents, we've already dealt with that. They came too late. They're not of contractual effect. And the credit notes are also not of contractual effect. They're the only things that actually stated the limitation of liability clause, and they were only used really to rectify payment errors between the parties, and so couldn't be held to be binding between the parties or binding on future contracts. So this reasonable notice argument was also a non-runner. So then, as a fallback, they tried to rely on this incorporation by course of dealing argument, and again appealed to the notion that they had several hundred previous transactions, and the, the standard terms and conditions of Irish asphalt applied to all those previous transactions, and that those standard terms and conditions included this limitation of liability clause. And this was also rejected by the Supreme Court. Again, they relied on this idea that in order for there to be incorporation by a course of dealing, the course of dealing has to be regular and consistent. And although there were plenty of prior dealings between the parties, the limitation clause had only been referred to three times in the credit notes between the parties and had only been alluded to indirectly in the delivery documents, so there wasn't this consistent course of dealing. So you can see here how the McCutcheon versus David McBrain authority effectively applies to the facts here. Now, I mean, that's just a very quick summary of the case. As I say, I I do recommend actually reading this judgment because it provides such an excellent review of the Irish legal position on on incorporation. So let me then conclude, because we've reached the end of this discussion, on incorporation. As I said at the outset of this pair of lectures, there are three methods by which you can incorporate a term into a contract. You can incorporate by signature, and this is in many ways the safest bet, but there are exceptions to it. There is the non-est factum exception, 
where you didn't understand what you were signing up to through no fault of your own. There's the misrepresentation exception, where something stated at the point that you sign contradicts or undermines what's actually written in the document. And there's also then the non-contractual document exception, which we've actually just seen apply here to the James Elliott case. Second, there is the notion of incorporation by notice. So this is common when contracts are not signed. But it's clear that you have to give notice prior to the formation of the contract. The term must be stated in a document that purports to be of contractual effect or that would reasonably be understood to be of contractual effect. And finally, if the other party is unaware of the term and states that they're unaware, then reasonable steps must have been taken to draw the other party's attention to the term and applying the interphoto rule, what counts as a reasonable step depends to a large extent on how onerous or unusual the term in question is. Finally then, you can incorporate a term into a contract by custom or course of dealing. There are two separate things. This is a fallback option, and it only applies in the case of a course of dealing if that course of dealing has been regular and consistent, and it only applies in the case of a custom where both parties are in the same trade, they have equality of bargaining power, and both can be fairly said to be aware of the customs within their trade. Okay, so that's it for incorporation of terms, of express terms. We're now going to move on in the next set of lectures to discuss an adjacent and related topic about incorporation, which has to do with the existence of implied terms of contract.